I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here from the Australian National University and welcome to another thrilling episode of Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm talking this week with someone with whom you may well be familiar. He's had a rich and varied career which has taken him around governments, around the academy and around the world. His particular discipline is economics, but he's a lot more than mere grim practitioner of the dismal science. He is best known as the airport economist, but Tim Harcourt is also the J.W. Neville Fellow in Economics at the University of New South Wales, and as I said, he's host of the Airport Economist TV show and podcast. Welcome to the ANU's barbecue area, Tim. I hope you've brought your trademark Akubra hat with you. I have indeed, mate. I've got my Kubra hat and I've got my RM Williams boots, so I'm all ready to go, airport economist style. Ridgy Didge. Now, Tim, I've wanted to get you on for a long time because you have much wisdom to offer, but I particularly thought of you when you flashed up a photo on Twitter recently of your personal copy of the much-discussed Prices and Incomes Accord, or better known as the Accord to many people. What version was that that you flashed up that picture of and, and why did you come to have it? Well, Mark, that was the Old Testament. Uh, the original Accord document that was written by the uh, ALP in opposition uh, and the ACTU, and it was a creation pretty much of the ACTU Research Department, uh, where I myself worked in my first sort of major job um, in my career. And the ACTU Research Department was sort of Bill Kelty, uh, Jan Marsh, Rob Jolly, and the Labor opposition shadow treasurer in those days was Ralph Willis, and the accord document was actually forged when Bill Hayden was leader, Ralph Willis was the shadow treasurer, and the ACTU wanted to put together in opposition uh, a prices and incomes policy for, for when uh, Labor won government, which they did. Yeah, there's a, a lot of reason why we're talking about the accord at the moment, because the federal government, the coalition government led by Scott Morrison, has recently made some, uh, I guess you might say at this stage, rhetorical shifts, uh, overtures toward the trade union movement for greater cooperation. This arises out of a, um, out of very much out of the response to the coronavirus crisis. Um, the ACTU and the Industrial Relations Minister, Christian Porter, have been working very closely together. There's said to be a much stronger personal bond between them than has been the case between the ACTU and uh, coalition 
ministers, governments uh, of the past. And it looks like uh, the coalition is wanting to capitalise on that and, um, and take a more conciliatory, constructive, cooperative approach. Now, this has led some to suggest that it's a sort of a co- what's in the making is a coalition version of the accord. Um, we've had Frank Bongiorno, uh, Professor Frank Bongiorno, on, on this program a number of times, uh, and uh, he's recently written about that and says that uh, comparisons with the accord are well and truly overstated. There's a range of reasons why this is quite different. But what's your assessment? Is there, um, uh, is, is there some prospect here for better relations and for better industrial relations outcomes as a result of this new atmosphere? It's amazing, you know, when we were thinking about the Accord and thinking about the 80s, I was thinking about that 80s sort of legend, Crocodile Dundee, you know, when he said, uh, that's not a knife, this is a knife. You know, it was like, that's not an Accord, Scott Morrison, this is an Accord. And that's sort of why I tweeted the version. But um, it's remarkable, Mark, isn't it, when you think about it, that we are talking about uh, a coalition government talking to the ACTU as this amazing thing, you know, when... Historically, uh, as Bill Kelty used to tell me, they did offer an arrangement with Malcolm Fraser when he was Prime Minister, and it got great opposition from John Howard when he was Treasurer and, of course, the Treasury. And sort of, so Fraser was left to sort of implement his own wage freeze, and of course, you saw the recession of 82, 83 uh, worsen, and of course, the rest is history with Bob Hawke winning the, winning the election uh, and then implementing the accord. Um, and I think it's important to remember the original prices and incomes accord was two things. One, it was a reaction to the failure of the Whitlam government, particularly on wages policy, but economics policy. You know, when I interviewed Bob Hawke, um, he said, oh, everything Goff knew, you know, about economics, you could put on the back of a postcard and still have room for the stamp, you know. And uh, <laughs> when uh, I interviewed Goff about this period, uh, Goff Whitlam always said, "Well, the uh, the great advantage of the uh, of Bob Hawke had as prime minister is he didn't have to deal with Bob Hawke as ACTU president." You know that was sort of Goff's uh, response to that because, as Bill Kilty used to tell me, he and Laurie Carmichael um, came out of the the Whitlam uh, rally in '75 when the election was probably lost. They all knew it, and Laurie said to him, "You know they really deserve better," and I think by that he meant. The trade unions really should cooperate with the Labor government. So I think that's where the accord came from. They thought when they come back in, and you know, ironically, it was it was Hawke who was on the Prime Minister's uh, shoes when, when they got back in. They did want to be very constructive with the government. And secondly, of course, they wanted an alternative to the you know the double digit inflation uh, and unemployment of the Fraser recession at the time. So it was seen as an alternative economic policy. But also, you know, it's almost like anything the Whitlam government does will do the opposite. And I think that's the reason really for its uh, for its longevity. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I was, in fact, just going to ask you about that because there was a real atmosphere when the Hawke government came to power. It was only seven, uh, eight years after the fall of the Whitlam government and those explosive circumstances, the dismissal, of course, which had been also in the uh, in the media recently as a result of those palace letters being found to be accessible. And there's been a a renewed interest in all of that. But it was such a convulsion in politics and it was very much the view within uh, the hard heads of Labor that um, Labor had 
overindulged and and kind of fluffed its uh, opportunity a long awaited opportunity of government bear in mind that uh, labor had last been in government before 72 in 1949 and and so you had this kind of um this this pent up uh, expectation about what a Labor government could do. There'd been a long period of kind of stagnation, social and economic stagnation from essentially do-nothing governments in between. Labor had come to power in 72 and then things had gone fairly rapidly out of control uh, for a variety of reasons, some of them domestic and some of them international to do with the oil price shock and a few things like that. But um, the, the, it seemed like when Labor came back in 83, uh, there was this as you say, this kind of very strong uh, presentation of being quite different, quite fundamentally different in terms of economic policy and competence from the Whitlam government. And uh, and so the accord was very much, among other things, a way of managing inflation and dampening down expectations of Labor's base. Now, you're quite right because we did have, you know, wage, wage uh, push inflation always uh, John Neville, uh, of whom my fellowship's named after at UNSW, uh, we had stagflation, which is simultaneous wage and price inflation. We weren't alone. I mean, this this happened all over the Western world. And I think uh, one thing that happened when um, the Labor Party and the ACTU talked about the accord, the original accord, was it got a lot of criticism because people said, well, it didn't work for Harold Wilson and James Callaghan in the UK. It didn't work for Richard Nixon with his wage price controls. Um, why do you think it's going to work here? And uh, most commentators, many uh, many economists said, uh, look, we'll give this a year or two. But it ended up lasting the full length of the Hawke and Keating Labor governments. And I think one thing about it, Mark, I thought it was very flexible. So, you know, originally it was about restoring employment and uh, uh, having wages adjusted for prices. But when we had that terms of trade shock in 1985, there was a fear that import prices would feed into local wage inflation, as they had in the Whitlam government days. So uh, the ACTU did an agreement that they would discount for the impact of the uh, terms of trade shock and the devaluation of the Australian dollar, and they'd take um, benefits in in tax cuts and um, uh, superannuation, uh, effectively a deferred wage increase, and that allowed us to bring in you know, Medicare, superannuation, and some of the other social wage benefits that don't come in the directly in the pay packet, but they do improve the standard of living, uh, you know, for the, the workforce and the rest of the community. So I think the, the, the great thing about the Accord was it wasn't a static document. It was something that uh, could be amended and adjusted according to different economic circumstances. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was, a, as you say, a very strong uh, emphasis on um, on job creation, on getting people back into work after that uh, recession. Um, but it was also freighted with all these, uh, you know, fairly strong material trade offs uh, that uh, workers would get for giving up um, the right to, or giving up the capacity to strike at will. And and you know, it was an attempt to manage industrial unrest, as you say. It brought workers or unions into the tent of government. It wasn't just a sort of a simply a transactional arrangement. It had uh, very much a, a sense about it that uh, unions were part of the governing solution for the country and um, and that they were in partnership with the Labor government. When, when you start to frame it like that, it makes it much harder to see a comparison between that kind of partnership 
and even an optimistic version of what the coalition and the ACTU, ACTU might come up with this time. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I think the uh, the good thing has been that um, the ACTU has seen is seen as part of the leadership of the country now. I mean, in effect, uh, Scott Morrison as Prime Minister had that very bad um, period with the bushfires when he was caught in Hawaii and then it didn't do very well when he came back. And then I think at the beginning of the corona crisis when he said, oh, I'm going to the footy, and all the premiers and the public health officials said, well, well no, you're not. Uh, I think he had a shaky start, but then he really buckled down, worked well with the premiers, worked well with the public health officials, and worked very well with the ACTU. Uh, you know, um, Sally McManus, when she first came in, said you know she was going to break the law and so on, but then was found to be very responsible and working very well with with Christian Porter, and uh, I think that's why Morrison, with a bit of confidence from how he's handled the crisis so far, thinks he can chance his arm and uh, maybe get some reform in that he otherwise wouldn't be able to, to get in. Um, you know, it's interesting, Mark, when you think about, you know, how, how we're so amazed that a coalition government's talking to the ACTU. Robert Menzies, you know, the, the greatest, you know, Liberal of all, I guess, you know, the founder of the party in its modern form and the longest-serving Prime Minister, he used to say to his party room, listen, uh, for those of you who don't like me talking to trade unionists, just remember, half of them vote for you. And that was a pretty important point because, you know, I mean, you know, union membership was almost 60% in the 50s during the long Menzies reign. So obviously, a few people voted in coalition and I think he, uh, he, he ran that through. So that's something to, to keep in mind, even though union membership's not what, it, of course, not what it was in the 1950s. No, it's not. In fact, uh, private sector union membership is uh, down in the sort of uh, down near single figures, is it not? And it was it was uh, getting close to half the workforce, still close to half the workforce, really, um, at around the uh, the time of the accord. So, it, it it's going to be interesting to see the extent to which the ACTU can deliver. But I guess even before we get to that consideration, it's um, the, the question arises. What is it that unions can expect to get out of um, out of the government, um, and you know what do what do employers want? I mean, if we think about the, the sorts of things you mentioned, uh, the, the social wage uh, trade offers, as it was generally shorthanded, Medicare, compulsory super, superannuation, um, these were another other aspects of the social safety uh, social welfare net. Um, these were these were pretty serious uh, pieces of policy that changed the way the economy worked. Uh, one imagines the government's not going to be putting those kinds of things on the table. What do you think the unions are going to get out of the government, or what are what are they going to want to get out of the government? I think the best things the unions could could hope for, um, you know, apart from having a place at the national table, which I think they've now pretty much secured. I think Sally McManus deserves a bit of credit for. Um, dealing them in. Uh, but I think you'd want regular adjustments to the minimum, minimum wage, you know, even uh, allowing for corona that might have to be phased in. You'd probably want a minimum wage adjustment. You'd probably want uh, an extension of JobKeeper, perhaps to casuals, perhaps to sectors like the university sector that hasn't qualified. Um, you'd probably be looking at uh, something with respect to um, uh, putting more liquidity in the economy by the Reserve Bank um, buying bonds, maybe the industry super funds could, could uh, they could be issued and the industry super funds could 
pick them up. Uh, you're probably looking at uh, some sort of special pay arrangement for people on the front line, nurses, people in aged care, uh, teachers that have found you know the risk, personal risk of corona, quite hard, uh, as well as obviously they've, they've been a long way behind community standards. And I guess you, given the uh, you know given the uncertainty of the labour market, you would want uh, a recommitment to the to the superannuation guarantee along the schedule. Um, you know, they'd be the five main things. You'd also be looking at some sort of reset of globalisation to support local manufacturing, some support for um, uh, putting green back in the green and gold with respect to uh, green jobs uh, in the renewable sector and. And, and lastly, I mean, really, when you look at, uh, and this is an important part of the accord, the university sector, the TAFE sector, the um, professional uh, qualification sector, vocational sector, I mean, you really could have a reform of this, this, this sector so that you allow higher education, uh, professional education to be part of the solution to the, to the corona recovery. Because we've basically got to have to reskill our workforce up for the jobs of the future in the post-COVID world. And uh, that university sector, that technical education sector is going to be a very important part of that, that solution in terms of uh, uh, bringing our skills up to date for how, how, the, how the workforce is going to change. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to come back to those things, but I'm, I'm interested in this, um, um, what I think is potential fairly strong mismatch between the hopes and expectations of the ACTU and the unions on the one side and the government and employers on the other. We had Dr. Peter Byrne on the podcast recently from the Australian Industry Group, and I asked him uh, what it was that employers wanted out of, um, out of, you know, this improved relationship, what they would like to see happen. And uh, the first thing he nominated really was that employers wanted to improve the risk environment that they saw. So um, they wanted, uh, deconstructed that essentially meant they wanted it to be less risky to hire someone and the way that comes about is by it being easier to fire someone if it doesn't work. So you can take on staff if you think there's an opportunity there to uh, to build the business uh, and if it doesn't work out either for reasons of the employee not being suitable or, or business doesn't pick up, that you can shed that labour as well. Now, the Howard government got itself in all kinds of a tangle over this, trying to um, uh, make make it easier for employers to dismiss labour. It was a real kind of uh, it, it became a the, one of the most toxic features of its kind of um, the later stages of its work choices problem, and in the end was a material factor work choices itself in um, in the dismissal of the Howard government. So. That's that's the kind of employer side. On on the union side, unions are looking for um, for for actual wage increases, some some uh, addressing of the problem of, of flat wages over a long period of time, and they're looking for some fix to the casualisation of the workforce. You know, the, the the problem of of endlessly precarious work. These things seem to be oil and water. They seem to be a long way apart. Well, there's overshooting, isn't there? So um, probably. Uh, the coalition have always wanted some sort of flexibility in the market to hire and fire. And sometimes they can go too far. And I think with work choices, even quite moderate, uh, maybe even coalition voters thought, you know, um, sacking someone because, you know, they've got a, you know, they had those famous ads where the uh, woman had to look after her kids and got 
got sacked because you couldn't make hmm. it at the right time. So I think there's even, you know, conservative voters who thought work choices went too far. And then the pendulum can be, you know, the, the other way, uh, where the, you know, where the ACTU gets everything at, everything at once. Um, what was interesting about the accord period is that the ACTU didn't get everything it wanted, but it was prepared to trade off. So it allowed um, wage restraint, but it got Medicare uh, or super. Uh, it, um, you know, it, it uh, made some concessions on some other areas, but it allowed allowed it to get a voice on termination, change of redundancy, or education and training. So I, I actually think um, ultimately, uh, if you have a relatively pragmatic uh, minister like a, a Christian Porter. Uh, and a relatively pragmatic ACTU, which is probably how Sally McManus is, then you can then you can get reforms. But at the end of the day, yeah, you can't get everything you want, nor should you expect it. And it's always that great Australian balance, isn't it? The right to have a go for an entrepreneur to take risks, to export, to get into different markets, and then the right for a fair go in terms of reasonable, you know, job security and wages and conditions. And that's always the ultimate. Balance. You know, I worked at the ACTU in Australia, so I've got equal admiration for people that work very hard and also people that um, take incredible risks, you know, taking their business to Brazil or China or, or India, you know, you know, putting a lot at stake to expand their business and create jobs for the rest of us. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a great balance in that that you need to find and you don't want to overshoot in either sort of policy direction. Let's take a quick break there and we'll be back in just a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We were discussing the old Prices and Incomes Accord between uh, Labor and the unions back in the Hawke-Keating days. One of the um, obviously strong character characters in that period of history was the ACTU Secretary Bill Kelty. Bill Kelty has recently uh, weighed into the situation, not so much talking about accords, but talking about the kinds of things Scott Morrison might do the the lessons he can take from from politics and what is achievable during this period of reconstruction and it's interesting that he's advised Scott Morrison not to try to do everything not to have sort of 20 balls in the air at once he's listed five things that he thinks uh should be um priorities for the government 
One of them is one that you've already mentioned, Tim, that is minimum wage. There's been a fair amount of hostility to the idea of a minimum wage increase. Uh, Employers say that this is a sure way to, at this stage, to frustrate any attempts at rehiring, that uh, it's already going to be difficult enough rebuilding the labour force after this recession as we come out of it. Uh, But Bill Keldy is saying the minimum wage should be adjusted uh, and uh, it it, it may need to be phased in, but there ought to be some expectation of that. He says the wage subsidy, which of course is JobKeeper, should be kept going longer and it should be expanded to cover casuals. Seems to make a lot of sense to me. Um, ensure adequate stimulus. Uh, you were mentioning this before, Tim. Um, bonds, uh, perhaps taken up by super funds uh, to ensure um, uh, you know, sufficient liquidity in the economy. Provide a welcome IR environment for training. Uh, that's going to be a critical factor, upskilling the workforce. And maintain commitment to superannuation. Again, you touched on this, uh, Tim. The, this has been a, you know, very much a political football. And in, in fact, there are those in the coalition who think the whole notion of compulsory super is, is dodgy. So, uh, do you want to talk to any of those? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was writing a coronomics, uh, series, um, Mark. Uh, for the conversation and some other places, the ABC too. And um, I came up with some points for recovery and then I read um, Bill's five points that he made in conversation with Michelle Grattan for for the conversation. And it's interesting, Bill has this thing and he said it to Bill Shorten during the election. I don't know whether Bill Shorten listened to him or not, but this thing about you don't try and do too many things at once. And so Kelty put down... I don't think he did. <laughs> I don't think he did. I mean, that's the big criticism of the uh, of the presentation, I guess, uh, of Labor at the last election. That there was just so much on the table. On. So, uh, and, and it just, I mean, even people who may see merit in each one, it's too much to absorb at once. Um, I was interested in Bill Kelty's view on the minimum wage. I mean, the minimum wage, I was on the Fair Work Commission minimum wage panel, it actually doesn't benefit ACTU members. It's really non-union members who get the benefit of it. And the evidence seemed to show that over the years, if you had a modest um, increase in the minimum wage each year that employers have the capacity to pay, that was better for employers than, than the environment being very uncertain. And what was interesting, you had uh, 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 Peter from the AIG on your show um, the AIG often says there should be an increase. The uh, ACCI, since about 1970, has said there should be no increase, whether it be a boom or a recession. They always say no increase. So I think it's actually better to make some concessions. So I, I would have thought that you could put the case for a minimum wage adjustment. But the ACTU put the same submission in they put in last year. And I would have thought there's the corona crisis on. There's no way you can apply that in the same fashion. So I would agree with Kelty that you probably have a phasing and you have to have some adjustment given that people are coming out, coming off JobKeeper in September potentially. Uh, that, that's where I think you probably have to make that, make that adjustment. But most of the economic evidence shows that you can have a modest, moderate increase in the minimum wage each year and it's good certainty for low-paid workers and for employers who do the right thing, of course. Uh, but most of it is would benefit people who are not part of the ACTU. But it has a, a macroeconomic effect as well, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking about, uh, uh, in so many other areas, we're talking about 
keeping stimulus in the economy uh, to uh, hold up demand, uh, to make sure that consumers are spending. People, of course, the lower you go down the income scale, the greater the proportion of the income that is immediately put back into any any disposable income is immediately put back into circulation. Uh, you don't tend to save if you're living hand-to-mouth, week-to-week, uh, only just making the rent and so forth. Um isn't is doesn't it have a stimulatory effect to increase the minimum wage? Yes, that's uh, that's uh, part of the attraction uh, in the sense that the lowest paid will spend more uh, of their income uh, than the higher paid. Um, with a lot of the evidence around um, Alpha Beta, uh, Andrew Charlton showed that that was basically on on groceries and rent and all the, the things that people really need, and that would help the economy. There was unfortunately some studies of people withdrawing their super, uh, which was not recommended, uh, and uh, a lot of that was expenditure on uh, on gambling, uh, unfortunately. So there's a bit of mi- mixed evidence, um, but for the most part, you'd say that a minimum wage adjustment would be more stimulatory than one uh, higher up the, the the income scale. That's probably right. But employers have always feared that whenever you lift the bottom rung that it has a knock-on effect up through the, co- the economy and you have a, an increase in labour unit costs all the way through. Um, I guess we're in a we're in a, a fairly unique situation at the moment, so um, those arguments may or may not apply. The, the next one he talked about was uh, keeping the wage subsidy going longer, so this is JobKeeper. Now, there's been a lot of talk about that all the way through, you know, the so-called cliff at 30 September, um, that that talk was turbocharged uh, a couple of weeks ago when it was you know revealed that the government's estimates of how many people were on JobKeeper were wildly overstated. You know there was some three million fewer, uh, and that therefore there was a sixty million dollar extra capacity, at least in terms of what the government envelope suggested that program was going to cost. There is talk of uh, ways in which it could be extended, perhaps sectorally, perhaps it could be uh, tapered. Um, I'm interested that Keldy didn't nominate in any of his five points uh, Job Seeker. This is also something that ends on on, on uh, June, sorry, on September 30. This is the doubled dole, effectively. Surely that is an unconscionable situation. The idea that we would just go back to the forty dollars a day unemployment benefit at that time, particularly given the large numbers of people, it's politically uh, unwise as well as socially unconscionable. Were you surprised that uh, the the dole didn't get mentioned in this, given the unemployment we're looking at? I was a little bit surprised uh, in the sense that whenever they did the accord negotiations under Kelty, they would mention the dial or, or pensions or training allowances. So that has been part of the overall social wage framework. I mean, I mean what's interesting about JobKeeper is that when you look at um, the last global financial crisis, Ken Henry from Treasury, his big mantra was go early, go hard, go households. Um, most economists like Richard Baldwin, who have written about how governments should respond to coronavirus, have said, you go, you you go hard, or, you know, you go big, you act early, and you keep the lights on. Um, that is, uh, you provide a wage subsidy, which in Australia is JobKeeper. So you provide a shield so that you shield small business and and workers uh, from the impact by attaching them to their their employer. Um, for for that reason, uh, given that you've now got a lot more capacity by you know a, a happy accident, I mean you want to 
you're going to make a big mistake at Treasury, you want it to go that way, not the other way. Um, you have got the capacity to expand it. You've got capacity to move the deadline belong the dreaded September and perhaps have a phase down rather than straight up a cliff. So you've got that you've got that opportunity, and that's probably what I suspect Josh Feidenberg and Scott Morrison are thinking about right now. What about this idea of uh, putting ad- making sure the stimulus is adequate and uh, using superannuation funds uh, or offering superannuation funds the op- opportunity to buy bonds and so forth? How, how does that work? Tell us about that. Well, that's uh, in effect um, when there's low private sector investment. Uh, that's um, allowing uh, the Reserve Bank and industry uh, industry super funds to basically buy uh, buy government bonds. I mean. What is welcome about that in a sense is that we had this big debt and deficit scare when Joe Hockey was treasurer and Tony Abbott was prime minister. And what Morrison has wisely pulled away from is the fact that it actually is fine to run a deficit uh, when the economy uh, you know, is sinking and um, uh, allowing uh, people to hold, hold debt, uh, allow the Reserve Bank to intervene, is okay, uh, provided you've got some stimulus going through the economy and the economy grows so that uh, eventually, you know, fiscally you're in a better position. Um, the, the big um, historical analogy is during the Spanish flu, uh, 1919, uh, governments ran terrible austerity programs and, uh, you know, debt uh, to income ratios were actually a lot worse 10 years, 10 years after the Spanish flu than they were at the beginning. So the idea is that if you have enough stimulus in the economy, then the fiscal side will look after itself, and that's the that's the idea of you know allowing an issue of, of government bonds because for whatever politicians want to say, the government is not like a is not like a household because we basically hold the debt with each other. And those super funds presumably uh, would take up those bonds because they would uh, that that represents a very sound and safe investment for them in terms of their members it may be low yield but uh, very safe well, and and therefore it's good ballast in their portfolio it's an investment in the country so the country's not going anywhere so it would be it would be safe um yeah it's interesting to what extent the industry super funds have been involved in a lot of these discussions there was talk that they would Invest in Virgin. Uh, I think Morrison was telling them to, uh, and uh, and yet they've um, you know they've been involved in a lot of infrastructure projects. So you know, one legacies of legacy of the accord, if you like, is that we do have this incredible pool of investment locally now that we didn't have from uh, you know from compulsory super, which is proving to be not a bad thing to have in your locker when you're faced with uh, with a corona induced recession. Indeed, and I guess Virgin, you might say, is at the other end of the risk curve from uh, government bonds. Uh, you've you've listed a few things yourself, and you touched on these uh, very briefly before the break. But uh, a few extra points on top of Kelty's. Um, for example, you'd like to see a reset of globalisation, as you've described it, to ensure better trade diversification. Now, this is uh, a different way, I guess, of saying that uh, of expressing the debate that's been quite uh, ferocious in Australia in recent times, as uh, China has uh, been seen to apply. Uh, you know, new tariffs and trade restrictions, uh, and that is how dependent are we on China? Of course, it's a, a strong debate 
within the university sector as well in terms of uh, foreign students, particularly Chinese students. Um, so is diversification I've, – I've, I've seen some economists respond to these calls by pointing out that it takes a very long time. Yes, we should have a broader trading, broader and deeper trading relationship with more countries so that we're not so vulnerable to, to these kinds of trade shocks. But this is a long-term project, is it not? Yeah, well, I think we're always diversifying. I think China's probably already always diversifying its import sourcing, you know, hence it has, you know, trade links and infrastructure projects in Brazil and Africa, uh, as well as us. Uh, I think it's partly to do with um, uh, having a multilateral trading system and having a number of regional fora that we are a part of, rather than just having, you know, big bilateral deals. Um, the, the biggest danger of the Trump uh, you know, trade war with China for Australia is if it blows up, of course, and everyone becomes protectionist, then as a small open economy, Australia really gets harmed. Or if it goes too well and Trump does, you know, cosy deals with China, you know, agreeing to buy American barley, well, you know, guess who that comes at the expense of? So I think in part and partially the diversification argument by trade economists has been, um, you know, belong to several forums, have multilateral and regional deals, don't have a world trading system that just has big players like China and the US uh, and the EU uh, beating each other up and locking us out. I think that's part of the, the subtlety of the argument. And also I think there is a degree to which with uh, global supply chains uh, in manufacturing, you want some in Australia, uh, particularly in emergency situations, and you also want it, you know, not all in one country so that when you get a shock, um, you don't find that all the ventilators have been, uh, you know, shipped back to Wuhan or, or a capital like that. So I think that's part of the, part of the debate as well. And it's, it's, really, um, it's really cutting the middle path between, I guess, some of the defence hawks that are so concerned about China, they're prepared to take a huge um, economic sacrifice to, to uh, you know, deleverage from China. And the people just think, well, it's all about business. You know, who cares about geopolitics? I think that's probably the other, the other extreme. And we saw um, rather unusually, um, you know, Twiggy Forrest uh, inviting the Chinese Consul General to Greg Hunt's press conference and getting him to make a statement, which uh, is most unusual uh, for a private sector businessman to um, conduct foreign policy on behalf of his um, customer, which was a bit unusual. It was. I don't think it went down all that well. Um, there is always think- going to be that sort of plutocratic element, I suppose, when you have such uh, lucrative trade, particularly with China, and it's such a huge market. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, and, of course, James Packer made that famous speech saying that we don't uh, defer to China enough, and I think Dennis Richardson, the then head of foreign affairs, said, oh, well, we don't bow enough, or what do you mean? You know, And so I think there is... Occasional freelancing of um, you know people with certain business interests into the con- conduct of Australian foreign policy, and that's where people push back a bit and say, "Well, you know, you do what you're good at, and we'll, we'll stick to our comparative advantage." So there's always that that tension when you have a very large customer exerting geopolitical influence, and you know we've seen it with the universities too, with this incident at the University of, of Queensland and, and similar. Uh, events to what to what extent that um, a customer can exert you know, political influence over a local university or organisation. 
Yeah. Now, one of the things you, uh, the other things you've listed there, you've described it as putting the green back in the green and gold. I, I do like the idea of this. It, it it does remind me of of some of the arguments, incidentally, of Mariana Matsukuto. She is a an economist working out of University College London, and she's very strong on this idea of um, purposeful investment uh, of governments actually getting something, particularly at these times when they are putting money into industry programs, into assistance, into stimulus, and the like. Um, and I and I guess that seems to be what you're saying as well. It reminds me even of the. Uh, much uh, despised but uh, but at least well-intentioned pink bat scheme, the idea that it was going to improve uh, the housing stock around the nation, make it more efficient, make energy efficiency a greater thing and therefore lower electricity bills and so forth. It was obviously it had its problems. Um, but that's sort of what you're saying here, isn't it, that we, if we're going to be spending money, we should be getting structural improvements out of that uh, and we can do that in terms of the the efficiency of the economy as well. Yeah, I'm wanting to put the green and not the pink in, Mark. But uh, <laughs> I think I, I think I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, when you're running full bore um, with the economy, it's very hard to, you know, uh, start deciding to restructure things in, the, in in that sense. But when you've got you've got some capacity around, like when you've had the bushfires, uh, and you want all these communities want to rebuild. And you can bring in uh, microgrids, you can bring in renewable energy because you're starting from scratch, you know, because all these places have been burnt to the ground. That's sort of your, that's sort of your opportunity. You know, um, an architecture group uh, in Victoria actually does this where they provide, um, you know, green building for communities that have lost their houses in Gippsland uh, and the south coast of New South Wales in the, in the bushfires. So you, you sort of got this opportunity. I'm doing a um, series of, Airport economist specials for for DFAT on crisis and recovery and also climate innovation. Actually, looking at um, where the types of things that Australia are doing that are new and innovative, they also happen to you know tick some environmental uh, objectives as well. And you're able to do so because you're going to have to rebuild anyway, rather than you know taking stuff down that uh, uh, is already already in practice. So that was the that was the um, idea of that. And also, I think um, over the summer with the bushfires, uh, you know, people in America and Japan just saw the country burning and um, they don't realise that there's a lot of Australian green architects in China and India and in Indonesia. And, you know, we're doing a lot of innovative things in Australia and around the region that perhaps people don't know about because they just saw, you know, they just saw the bushfires and, uh, you know, the continent seemingly in, in peril. So it's just a way of telling uh, Australia's story in terms of some of our um, environmental industries that have done quite well. Now, we're getting very close to time. There's two quick questions I'd like to, to deal with. Just I'd like to get your response to the national accounts, which as we record this came out yesterday, showed that in the first quarter of this year, the Australian economy contracted by 0.3%. Were you surprised by that outcome? Uh, is the economy perhaps in better shape than we thought it was? Yeah, I was surprised on the upside. I mean, I suppose in 1991 it was the recession we had to have. In 2020 it was a recession we deliberately engineered hmm. to over this public health pandemic, you know, corona. Um, so we, it's not like a recession that happened by accident. We, we did it deliberately like a hibernation, as the Prime Minister said. So uh, I was amazed uh, 
uh, it wasn't worse. Uh, but of course, it hasn't. Most of that uh, contraction hasn't been picked up in that first quarter. Yeah, this was a bit of bushfires and a bit of the early COVID stuff, so it'll be a lot worse, obviously, next time. But you've got to you've got to think to yourself, well, geez, if we hadn't made those measures uh, in terms of the public health lockdown, how worse would the recession be? Because you can't work with most of your country sick, you know, and everyone in intensive care. So, you know, it could be that whilst people are concerned about the economic implications of the lockdown or shutdown, uh, it, it may be that uh, it would have been a lot worse had we uh, not done much. And I think some of the other countries that we've seen around the world who didn't lock down uh, are now finding that both on a public health front and also in terms of the, the, the economic consequences. Indeed, it may be the recession you would have been mad not to have. Uh, and uh, we've speaking of madness, uh, we've seen that in, in, in places, particularly the US, which is tearing itself apart at the moment. You've lived there. What do you make of the uh, widespread unrest there? Well, geez, Mark, I lived in Minneapolis. At least people know where Minneapolis is now. <laughs> they certainly do. I lived very close to, uh, you know, of course, where they had those protests and riots. Uh, well, it's very difficult because you've got a mixture of, um, you know, this long, long-running, um, you know, civil rights movement and um, difficulties between the police and the African-American community. And um, you see a lot of very good policemen marching with the protesters. They really are very sincere. They want to do something to improve matters. Uh, but then you have, um, you know, uh, some riders, some uh, people taking over black neighbourhoods who are not from not from the neighbourhood, causing problems for uh, for for the locals, and uh, and and then you get the the very uh, very tense political uh, situation. So uh, very difficult, and um, I wonder to to what extent. Um, uh, the election brings it to an end or whether the election just delays it for a bit longer. I mean, we know that there'll be a president, Donald Trump, until January next year or or, or January, uh, you know, uh, 2025, I guess. So it, it's either another few months or another four years. That's a grim prospect. Uh, either way you look at it, thanks so much for joining us, Tim Harcourt. It's been really terrific talking economics and politics uh, with you. We haven't got around to talking about the Sturt Football Club, but perhaps we'll do that on oh, another I'm a, part. I'm a Adelaide supporter. You're Sturt, aren't you? Yes, but, I mean, I'd like to obviously talk about Sturt's superiority over North Adelaide and uh, and, and others. I have, great respect, I have great respect for Jack Odie and the Sturt Football Club because uh, nearly, nearly all my teachers at Unley High played for Sturt, so... I have to respect them. And, of course, Mick Noonan, that Sturt champion, uh, revived North Adelaide and took them to two premierships. So great respect for the Double Blues. Indeed he did. And I used to cycle with Mick Noonan on, on, of a morning sometimes in a small group and a uh, pretty powerful sprinter, I can tell you, uh, even, uh, even as his years advanced. Great to have you along, Tim. Thanks for that. And uh, thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. We'll be with you again early next week. Bye for now. <laughs> 